The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Amen, church. Would you remain standing with me as we read Exodus chapter 12, verses 29 through 32. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up! Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go. Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks, your herds, just as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? Father God, your glory... majesty of your name there's nothing greater in all the universe than this so father we gather together as a people this morning making that our goal making that our aim we may see and live in light of that glory that your name would be exalted that the world would look to us and they would see a people truly and utterly satisfied in you. And that in that, as we give expression to the glory of your name, the nations would see that you would be glorified amongst them as they look at us and see a people that sit at your feet, enjoying unending pleasures there in your presence, and that they too might be drawn in. But Father, we know that it begins with a right understanding of who you are, the right reading and reception of your word. Father, we know that we can't do that apart from the working of your Holy Spirit. So in the moments to come, God, we ask that you would do what only you can do. Help us to see and hear and rightly think about and believe the word that you have given us. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So one of the easiest ways to figure out what's most important to a person is simply to pay attention to what they talk about. They may not even realize it. They may not fully recognize just how consumed they are with a thing. But if you'll simply pay attention, take note of what a person talks about most, and it becomes clear. A man that loves his children, he'll find a way to work their names into every single conversation. Every time you meet with him, he has something to say about his family. A man who loves sports. He can't wait to get into the office in the morning to talk about the game that he's witnessed the night before. Hang out with someone long enough and you'll have no problem figuring out that which is most important to them. Dear friends, I submit to you this morning that this reality holds especially true with the God of the universe. Because God is not like man. God knows himself perfectly. God absolutely knows that which is most important to him. And he gives very clear expression to that. See, God does not speak a single careless word. There is intention 
and power and purpose behind everything that he reveals to us. So if you'll take the time to actually listen to what God says, it will be undeniably clear. Now, if you listen to what men have to say, even men who call themselves Christian, you can get real confused. You see, if you would listen to what many pastors have to say, they would have you believe that God's absolute greatest intention, that his top priority, the thing that's most important to him is you. But if you'll actually let God speak for himself, like actually take time to read the words that he has said, it is absolutely irrefutable. God's greatest passion, his absolute top priority is his own glory. Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord and that is my name. My glory I give to no other. The most precious thing, the most important thing to God in the entire universe, the thing that God cherishes most is the glory of his name. And the passion that God has, the zeal that God has for his own glory, it is unlike anything else in all the universe. Now you see, were a man to be wired like this, we would call him selfish and arrogant and sinful. But in God, when you're dealing with the highest, the greatest, the most magnificent, the most valuable being in all the universe, as a matter of fact, I would submit to you that it's impossible for man to even conceive of anything higher when we're dealing with this God, we do well to ask ourselves, what else would we have him focus on? You see, it is not an admirable trait for man to focus on lesser things. We don't applaud men when they take their passions and their energies and their focuses when they have access to the treasures of the universe and trade it for trinkets. Now, children do this. We would expect such a thing from a dumb child. But for a man, he would be a fool. A man would be an absolute fool not to dedicate his life and everything that he has towards the all-out pursuit of that which is greatest. Now, we've proven ourselves to be exactly that kind of fool. It's a very picture of sin that's painted for us in Romans 1. We read this in verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The very epitome of foolishness. The God of the universe offering us himself and we exchange that for the things that he created. Now I've spent many words and much time over the last three years trying to make this abundantly clear. That God's zeal for his glory and his working towards your good are not at odds. In fact, they're perfectly married together. There's no contradiction there. God's delight in his own glory and his provision for your joy and your goodness are not contrary to one another. You see, as God devotes himself to this, to giving expression and to protecting his glory, to making his glory known throughout all the universe, he's offering us that which is best and most valuable. He's inviting us to come, to taste, and to see, to experience that which is truly best as he shows us himself, as he lays himself out before us and shows us this is my glory and be drawn to this so that for those who truly know him, for those that truly see him as he is, as we come to him, and there we are satisfied, as we give expression to that satisfaction in what we call worship, we're holding his glory up for the rest of the world, inviting them to come and join us. So much so that what we find is that, again, I say God's glory and our joy are perfectly aligned. So I ask, if the epitome of sin, if the ultimate in foolishness is to allow our hearts or our minds to focus on anything other than the glory of God, and if his display of that glory truly leads to our greatest good, why would we expect 
More than that, why would we want God's aim to be on anything else? Even if that something else is us. This is sin and foolishness. And even if it were possible for God to do such a thing, it wouldn't lead to our greatest good. And so we must celebrate. We must praise. We must thank God for the reality that he refuses to make this downward trade. That he refuses, even if all of creation will, that the God of the universe, for his glory and our good, refuses to make anything other than his name his top priority and his ultimate focus. That's why he says, my glory I will not give to another. And we praise him in this truth. Dear friends, you must get this. If you don't get this, you'll miss everything else. If you don't come to the point of receiving this, the most critical thing that you can possibly know, you'll find that very much of the Bible and much of the gospel, for that matter, it'll make no sense. Your life, it won't make much sense. The pain, the suffering, the sorrow that he leads you through, it won't make much sense if you don't get this, that God's ultimate passion is for the glory of his name and that that same glory is the end. It's the purpose. It's the goal. It's the aim of everything that he does and absolutely everything that he's created. We read this in Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Please hear that again. The reason that everything that exists, exists. The entirety of the universe from the stars above to the tiniest ants in the sand, they all exist. You exist to make God's glory known. While we say that through him, for him, and through him, and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. All things exist to the glory of God. But ever since the fall of Adam, ever since that first sin in the garden, man has been failing to fulfill this purpose. It's an act of foolishness. Absolute spiritual suicide. Man has traded down. He has traded that which God offers us. True and lasting joy. True pleasures at his feet. His very glory that he shows all throughout his creation. We've exchanged that for passing pleasures. Seeking to give the glory that is reserved only from God to lesser things, mostly ourself. In this, we not only rob ourselves of true pleasures, we not only rob ourselves of that which is greatest, but we seek to rob him of the thing that he cherishes most, namely his glory. So the question is this, what are you going to do about it, God? If your glory is truly the highest and the greatest and the most magnificent, if it is truly your greatest passion, if you have truly created everything that is for the manifestation of that, what are you going to do about the fact that men have neglected it, that they have spurned it, that they have spit in your face? What will he do? See, God can't simply turn a blind eye. That's what many preachers would have you believe, that the highest and most laudable thing God can do is just sweep your sins under the rug and pretend like they never happened. But dear friends, that's not a thing to be praised. God can't ignore this. If truly his glory is the greatest and truly his glory is to our greatest good, how can we ignore such a thing? Surely we must find ourselves guilty, deserving of punishment. And from that place, surely his wrath must rest upon us all. Surely God must punish man for this. Surely he must be personally enraged by this. So much so that we see his personal righteous wrath falling on all creation. What else could he do when man so impugns his name, so neglects the thing that he cherishes most? And yet, God determined, according to his sovereign decree, there was nothing absolutely necessary about it. There was no divine imperative which required it, driven by nothing but unmerited mercy and grace. 
driven by nothing but the undeserved love of God upon sinners like you and like me. Before the foundation of the world, the triune God determined when this man falls, when he sins, when he makes a bunch of babies and they go out and fill the earth with a bunch of other little rebels, I will not destroy them all. I will save some. That I will glorify my name, not just in the pouring out of my wrath upon all sinners, but in the salvation of some. But how? How can God allow man to disregard his glory? How can God allow man to impugn his righteousness and allow him to live? There's guilt that must be dealt with. Man is truly soaked in sin and deserving of punishment. The punishment being his wrath. How? How can God do such a thing? And as the story of history begins to unfold throughout the scriptures, we see shadows. We, we see pictures and signs, just glimpses of perhaps what God is doing. As we go right back to the garden, and we find there the man and his wife, they've followed after the desires of Satan. They've fallen for his trap. They've rebelled against God, always trading down, trading the glory of God for a bite of fruit, seeking to trade the glory of God that they themselves might become God's. And we see the first faint picture right there is God is immediately there. He kills an animal. And by the skin of that animal, he covers their nakedness. And there at that moment, he issues to them a promise. He issues to them a promise that he's going to send forth one, an offspring from the woman, and that he will be the one to bruise the head of the enemy. That he will come, not only destroying the enemy, but destroying his works and setting these people free from the sin that now ensnares them. Undoing this sin that is so wrapped around their heart that it's almost inseparable from them. That this is the promise he makes. And yet, the man continues to sin. He and his wife have babies, and they have babies to the point that the whole earth is filled with a bunch of little rebellious babies, that they've all sinned against God. They're so filled with sin and rebellion and men neglecting the glory of his name that the scripture tells us every last intention of their heart was only on evil. And then we see another picture, another glimpse that God is going to glorify himself. He will not merely ignore this sin forever, that God is going to glorify himself in the pouring out of his wrath. He's going to flood the earth. He's going to wipe away all these sinners. We're going to see his righteous judgment, his righteous wrath for the sins of men and the coming of this flood. But he saves a family of eight. We begin to see a little bit more of the picture as he, he spares them from his judgment by hiding them in an ark. And we, we recognize that, no, God's not just going to wipe the sins of men under a rug. He's not going to just pretend as if they, if they hadn't happened. That judgment does come and that yet he is willing that through his own gracious provision, he is willing to spare some He's, that he has chosen. But how? Because these eight people were sinners too. They were deserving of God's wrath too. They were guilty of sin too. And yet we find them spared. Because they trust in the promises of God, they are spared and they live. And yet we know that God will not share his glory for another. So what happens to that guilt? What happens to his wrath? How does he possibly spare these people like this? People are again blessed by God. More babies, more rebels. They yet again fill the earth with a world full of little sinners, a world full of little mini-gods that seek to steal the glory of God. And then we see another picture, another dim image, as he calls a man named Abram to himself. He's going to give the man a son, a blessed son, a son that he truly cherishes. But then God's going to command the man, you're going to sacrifice this boy. You're going to take him up onto this mountain, and you're going to take his life. Then as the man acts in obedience to God, at the very last second, as he's about to do this unimaginable thing that God has demanded that he does, at the very last second, the Lord stops his hand. He looks and there's a ram in the thicket, a substitute, 
a substitute provided by God. And we begin to understand just a little bit more that God's way of providing, God's way of making a way of escape, God's way of sparing people that he chooses from his wrath, from his judgment, is by providing and accepting a suitable substitute, a sacrifice. He will accept this animal, this ram in place of this boy. So the picture is a bit more clear. The man trusted God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, but he's still a sinner. What happens to the guilt? What happens to the wrath? How could God possibly bless Abraham and all of his family knowing that they had sinned against him like this? Something has to be done with regards to his sins. Now fast forward more than 400 years later, the man's family has become great. You noticing a theme? Babies and babies and babies and all of them little sinners. But now just as God has promised, he's become a great nation. Millions of them, but they're enslaved. They're slaves in Egypt. But there's another picture. We see another sign, another shadow, another copy of something yet to come. As God determines, I'm going to redeem my people. I'm going to set them free. He's going to put his glory on display first in bringing his just judgment on the sin of the people in Egypt. He's going to demand the life of the firstborn of all of them. His glory is going to be on display for all to see. Everyone in all the nations are going to know about the power of God. That God's name will not be mocked. That his hand cannot be resisted. So that the angel of the Lord, he's going to pass through all of Egypt. He's going to take the life of the firstborn in every home, as David read, even amongst the livestock. But his people, he's going to spare them. They're going to take a lamb. They're going to take that lamb, and it's going to live with them for a while. It's got to be a spotless lamb, a lamb without blemish. They're going to bring that thing into the house. This is a personal thing. You see, this lamb isn't going to die for the generic thoughts of sin, specific sin. They're going to bring this lamb into the house, and then they're going to kill it. They're going to eat it. They're going to eat that lamb there, prepare it, and eat it there with, along with unleavened bread. And this is going to be their last meal in slavery. Not only is God going to make certain that these people are released from slavery, but they're going to be enriched with gold and silver and livestock, all of those things too to be used for the sake of his glory. But that this is God's plan. And yet before that freedom can come, they've got to take the blood. They must take the blood of this lamb and paint it on the doorposts, on the mantle of their home. That it's only, we begin to see that it's only under the covering of this blood, the blood of this innocent substitute, that the firstborn of Israel might be saved. Again, this lamb was spotless. It was without blemish. And we see a bit more clearly that God will provide. Not only will he provide a substitute, a sacrifice, not only will he receive that sacrifice, but this sacrifice must be perfect, must be spotless, must be without blemish. And it's only through the shedding of that sacrifice's blood. That substitute must die, that its blood may cover their sin, that its blood may cover these people, that they might be spared. But would God really accept the life of a dumb animal? How can a lamb be enough? How can even a perfect lamb, how can it be a proper payment for the sins of the Jewish people? They've attacked that which God treasures most, that which he holds his ultimate passion for, namely his own glory, his name. His glory, his reputation, it has been assaulted. It has been disregarded. There is no way that one lamb, there's no way that a million lambs can possibly make this right. And so the question remains, how will God fully and finally glorify himself in this? Dear friends, God is clearly vindicated in the destruction of the wicked. Don't let men convince you otherwise. God is clearly just and righteous and glorious and holy when we see him pouring out his wrath upon sin and upon sinners but how then will he be glorified in this what happens to the guilt what happens to the sin how can God be the just judge of the universe while simply ignoring sin well he can't what Proverbs 17 15 tells us 
that he who justifies a wicked man or he who condemns the righteous, they're both an abomination to God. That God literally hates a man that would look at a guilty man and say, well, let's pretend as if that had never happened. Let me just turn a blind eye to this. This is the tension that should have rested in the air at every single Passover feast. For more than a thousand years, the Jewish people had been gathering together in Jerusalem to observe the Passover, celebrating God's faithfulness and redeeming his people, celebrating his mercy and sparing them from his wrath, celebrating the fact that he provided for their every last need as they were out there in the wilderness, the fact that he was willing to accept the blood of an innocent substitute in their place. But the question on everyone's heart should have been, how is God going to deal with our sin once and for all? The sin that he has passed over for centuries. God's glory demands more. God's glory, the thing that he cherishes most, his ultimate passion, the very reason why we exist, it demands more. In the blood of bulls and goats and rams and even perfect little lambs, it cannot take away our sins. They're but a shadow, a picture, a sign, a copy pointing to something more. Now don't get it twisted. Adam and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and King David, they were really saved. They were really forgiven. They were really counted as righteousness. They had really come to faith and repentance. And what we see then in their heart, as you read through Psalm 51, we, we see the heart of David exposed and we see what true repentance is. We see David coming to the end of himself and recognizing these things aren't enough. You don't just demand animals because it's not just my hands that are unclean. It's not outward sacrifices that are going to do because my heart is the problem. It's a broken and contrite heart. A lowly spirit, those are the things that you won't turn away. Those are the things which can make me right with you. These things are but pictures. Friends, I read through the Old Testament, I can't help but believe that those that God truly saves there, those that he has brought to look beyond the pictures, those that come to the feast and recognize God's got to do more. I am truly sinful. I am truly guilty before him. His wrath is truly deserved in my life. And those that can see beyond this can recognize that this is pointing forward to something in the future, that those are the ones that are truly saved. But that those that stopped right there, those that just saw the symbols, they stopped and thought, surely there can't be anything else. We've checked the box. What else could God want from us? That those are the ones that were ultimately damned. Those are the ones that left this life and found out in the next that there was no salvation for them. But that the Old Testament saints... Those are the ones whose God, who God had truly turned their hearts. They recognized the depth of what had to happen to make them right with him. So for thousands of years, this was the picture. Millions upon millions of slain lamb. Gallons upon gallons of shed blood. And yet the sin remained. But then Christ appeared. The Son of God comes. John the baptizer says he's a lamb of God coming to take away the sins of the world. The apostle John agrees and says that he has, in fact, come to take away sins. In fact, that he has come to destroy the works of the devil. This is Jesus Christ, the son of the most high God, the ultimate revelation of that which God cherishes most. We read in Hebrews 1.3 that he's the radiance of the glory of God. That in the face of Jesus Christ, his son, we see the most full and complete picture of the glory of God. There can be no greater gift than him. It is in him that God is making his glory seen. It is in him, this perfect sacrifice, the perfect lamb, the spotless lamb, is in his sacrificial death that the answers come. How will God deal with our sin once and for all? How will God be glorified and yet still love reckless rebels like us? If he will not destroy us all, if he will not wipe us all out, if we will allow some of us into his presence where no sin can stand, how will that be done? It's in him. He is the substance. 
He is the real thing. He is the object that all of the signs and all of the copies and all of the shadows have been pointing towards for all time. It's in the person and the works of Jesus Christ where we see the ultimate manifestation of the highest, the greatest, the most magnificent, the most valuable, the most soul-satisfying thing in the entire universe, the glory of God and the salvation of sinners. It's what we celebrate when we talk about the Son of God coming to become the Son of Man as he takes all of that sin, all of the sin of all the Old Testament saints, those who had come to God with a broken heart, those who had a contrite spirit, those who had truly repented and trusted, trusted that God would do more, He would take all of their sins and all of the sins of those that come after him, all the sins that can now look backwards through the cross and recognize what the Passover was all about. He took all of those sins upon himself and he died, removing the only thing that would separate us from God, washing us clean of our guilt and satisfying the wrath of God. This was the picture. As he came, the spotless and perfect and infinitely worthy sacrifice, having fully, completely glorified the Father, not just glorified in the Mount of Transfiguration as he pulls back the veil to his flesh, not just glorified in his resurrected body, glorified in his every last word, glorified as he healed every single blind man, glorified as he upheld every last portion of the law, fulfilling all righteousness at every moment within his life, and then laying that precious life down, dying and taking our place, gladly, freely giving of his life that we might be washed clean by his blood, that that guilt, that stain might be removed from us, and that there on that cross he would drink down the cup of his father's wrath, satisfying it so much so that there is no more, that he can truly say, it is finished. As he pays the price for all those sins that have been passed over for all those years, all for the sake that God's name could be glorified, that that which he cherishes most, that which is most precious to him, that it might be protected, that God could be both just and the justifier of sinners all seen in the coming of his son. And he makes clear to us in the economy of God, in the economy of the kingdom of God, that every last sin, every ounce of rebellion, every single thought and word and deed which falls short of attaining to the glory of God, which falls short of paying God the homage and the honor that he is due, that every single last sin will be paid for, either by the sinner in hell or by the son on the cross. How we see the fullness of God's glory coming in his son. In this, he would be supremely glorified, not just in the eternal destruction of the wicked, but in the salvation of some. All of this proven as Jesus Christ rose from the grave, proving that it truly was finished. There was no more price to be paid. There was no more sacrifices that were necessary. That's why we see as the son ascends to the right hand of the father and he sits down there. The priests on the earth, they remain on their feet because day after day they're having to sacrifice these animals. Year after year they're having to sacrifice these animals. Jesus Christ sits at the Father's right hand because he says, that part's finished. The work I do now, I do from this place of my seat, upholding the fullness of the earth, sanctifying you by the work of the Spirit, speaking on your behalf to the Father, continuing to prepare for the final day when I will return. That all of this happens from a place of seated of him seated at the right hand of the Father because the work of sacrifice has been done once and for all in him. This is the picture of what we've been studying all these weeks. And as the sovereign God of the universe has been moving literally everything towards this point, all of creation has been moving towards this point, we see the reality that God is in control of all of it. That there's not one single act in human history that's going to degrade from this, it's going to pull away from this, it's going to threaten the glory of God. And we see this most clearly as Jesus prepares his disciples for what comes next. He's been continually tell them that, telling them that I've come to die. Not just to die, but to give my life as a ransom for many. He's been preparing them for what awaits them in Jerusalem. And now as we see the clock on Jesus' life ticking down, 
as we see an end to his earthly ministry in sight, we're reminded in this morning's text yet again that he controls the entire drama. None of this is accidental. None of this has gotten out of control. It is all happening exactly as God has predestined it to happen, that nothing will happen outside of his will. And in this, we know that he will be glorified. And so, we return to this morning's text. Please stand to your feet. Reverence the reading of God's word. Don't worry, that was half the sermon. That, that, was, that was an intro to the next three weeks, God willing, so don't panic. But I will have an intro next week, just in case you wondered. 14th chapter of Mark's gospel. We're going to begin in verse 12. This is the word of God. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters into the house, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. All God's people said, you may be seated. Father God, we pause here midway through and ask you yet again, Keep our minds sharp. Keep our hearts focused. Do not allow us to pull away. Change us through the working of your word by the power of your spirit. For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So we will, we will dip our toe into the preparation for the Passover this morning. And then I look forward with great anticipation what God will show us in the weeks to come. So we begin in verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. So, again, we will, we will explore the fullness of the Passover and all that it represented and all that it means, God willing, in the weeks to come. But as I've made clear, the, these feasts, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they were, they were given as a gift from God, commanded by God to his people during the Exodus. And the purpose there was to be a meal of commemoration. They were to remember all that God had done, a memoriam for all the good things that God had done, again, not only in sparing his people, but in setting them free from slavery and meeting their every last need in the wilderness. But not only was it a meal of commemoration, it was a meal of anticipation. As I said, it was a meal that was meant to drive them to look forward to something greater, to a fuller redemption, to that day when sin will no longer reign, to that day when the new covenant will come, all that that's promised through Jeremiah, to the day when death will be no more. It's a, it's a meal of commemoration as they look backwards to all God's goodness and of anticipation as they look forward to the goodness yet to come. And I've got to ask you, dear friends, is that where your heart is? Do you look backwards at the good things that God has done? Do you look backward at God, God's utter faithfulness in your life despite your faithlessness, despite the fact that we, much like the Israelite people, that we grumble against him, even as he leads us out of slavery, we grumble against him and we second guess him and we demand that he does differently and yet he continues faithful time after time after time after time. Has his faithfulness in the past driven your obedience going forward? Has it driven your worship and your anticipation of the days yet to come? That was the purpose of this meal. Now oftentimes these two meals, the Passover and unleavened bread, they were referred to just as one. Now we know that the totality of these feasts that lasted eight years and it began with the sacrifice of the Passover lamb 
Now, the lamb had to be selected earlier in the week. As a matter of fact, Scripture tells us that it was on the 10th day of Nisan when the people had to select the lamb. Now, in the year that Jesus was killed, this was a Monday. That's why many people, you may recall that back when we talked about the triumphal entry, what I believe to be Palm Sunday. I told you then that there are some people that believe that it was actually on Monday morning when Jesus rode in triumphantly into the city of Jerusalem. And the picture there in the minds of those men is that it was Jesus presenting himself as the Passover lamb. I quite like that argument. I don't believe it's accurate, but I I like it. It makes sense. Theologically, it makes sense. So maybe they're right. But the fact remains that it would have been earlier in the week when the men would have selected this lamb. And again, this lamb comes to live with them. And we were reminded the, the personal nature of this is they bring the lamb into their house, almost like a pet. The, kill, the children would have become attached to this thing. And we're reminded that Jesus didn't just die for the general idea of sin. Jesus didn't just die for the concept of sin. He died for the actual sins of men. The actual thoughts, the actual deeds, the actual selfishness, the actual careless words that you have spoken, that Jesus died for the actual sins of actual men. They were yours. And they were mine. And then the lamb had to be presented to the priests. They had to confirm that it met God's very high standard. And then that lamb had to be killed there in the court of priests within the temple complex. All of this had to take place, according to Exodus 12, 6, all of this had to take place at twilight. Now, according to Hebrew custom, this was between the hours of 3 and 5 in the afternoon, late afternoon, early evening. Now, God willing, next week we're going to explore how all of this comes together. We're going to explore how all of this shakes out in terms of the timing for Jesus and his Galilean disciples to take the feast on this day. But the idea is that you've got all these people. You've got all these people piling into the temple. And now the Jewish historian Josephus, he tells us there may have been as many as 250,000 lambs killed on this year. You can just imagine the scene there. It all had to happen on this specific time, on this specific day, and this specific place. Can you imagine the sights? Can you imagine the noises? Can you imagine the smell? Gallons upon gallons of blood running out of the temple and down the Kidron Valley that lays between the city and the Mount of Olives. And all of this, a picture of God's willingness to save his people by the shedding of the blood of an innocent substitute. All of this, all of the noise, imagine the noise. You're slitting the throats of lambs. Lambs are waiting to be sacrificed. All these people, all of this noise and all of this chaos, a picture of the price of sin. A picture of the cost of sin. And as the people walk out of the temple joyfully carrying that lamb to go and feast upon its flesh, a reminder that the merciful God of the universe is willing to spare you. The merciful God of the universe is allowed to let his sin, his, your guilt for your sin and his wrath to fall upon another. Could God have done any better a job of setting the stage? Could God have been any more gracious in setting the stage for the arrival of his son, Jesus Christ, the true Passover lamb? Now I stand here today with great haughtiness because I see it. I see it clear as day. What's wrong with them? But God had been gracious. God had very clearly set the stage and moved all creation towards this moment. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? So as a Jewish man born under the law and as a Jewish man that loved the law, Jesus kept the feasts. 
Matter of fact, Luke tells us that Jesus' parents took him to Jerusalem for the Passover routinely. There's a number of Passovers that are explicitly mentioned throughout the uh, gospel accounts for us. And I have told you before, you may remember, that one of the ways that we chart the timing, one of the ways that we have some sense of understanding that Jesus' earthly ministry was somewhere maybe just over three years in length is by looking to the Passovers that are mentioned in the gospel accounts. But these men, they clearly knew that Jesus was going to want to observe the Passover. That was the reason they came. They knew Jesus wanted to observe the Passover. What they didn't know was the particular weight that he had placed on this Passover. See, Luke tells us that Jesus said he had a strong desire to eat this Passover before he suffered. Again, firstly, because Jesus always does that which God commands. Jesus always does that which righteousness requires. God had told the people to eat the Passover. He told them to eat in this city and this way, and Jesus obeyed. It's Jesus' desire to do that which glorified God. Do you live in that way? Do you have a strong burning desire deep down in your soul to do that which glorifies God through your obedience? Do you have a deep burning desire down within your soul, not just so that other people may see, not just so that you can escape punishment, but so that, the God in, so that your God in heaven may be glorified through your willingness to obey, through your life of obedience? Secondly, because this was the last true Passover. There would be no need of Passover lambs or any sacrifice after this point. He was the true Passover lamb and he would be laying down his life, a once and for all sacrifice. And so I have to imagine that every year as Jesus came to Jerusalem for the Passover, every year as he sat down at the table and someone brought in the Passover lamb like the Thanksgiving turkey, the center of the entire feast, he sat there and thought year after year after year, we do this because that lamb's not gonna cut it. He's a picture of me. He's a copy of me. He's a shadow of me, and the day will come. Now the day has come. That this is why he came, not just to Jerusalem, but to all the earth. This was the purpose in his coming. Thirdly, Jesus still had a great deal of teaching to impart to his disciples, his closest disciples. What we're gonna see here, John's gospel takes from chapter 13 all the way through chapter 17 to express to us all that happened on this night. That's how critical this night was in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, this night before his crucifixion. We're going to see some of the most selfless acts of service. We're going to see some of the most beautiful prayer. We're going to see some promises that are issued. We're going to see an incredible time of instruction happening all within the context of this meal. And lastly, because Jesus is going to turn the Passover fe uh, feast, the Passover meal, into his table. It's on this night that he's going to institute the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, and I couldn't be more excited by God's absolute perfect providence as he leads us to study that text we will be gathering together at the table as we gather together for the very next time around the Lord's table a meal of commemoration a meal of anticipation in his very presence we're going to be coming to his word and asking what is this all about what is the purpose for why we gather in this place I've already got some of my thoughts together on this and I am pretty excited this, all of this, what's going to be happening on this night. And yet, even without grasping all of this, even without having all the answers, even knowing that the Jewish leaders wanted to destroy Jesus, his disciples knew that he wanted to take the Passover. And you got to see this. Because every night, before they closed the city gates, Jesus and his disciples, they departed Jerusalem and went over the mountain to Bethany. They weren't going to stay in Jerusalem where he could be captured one night sooner than the appropriate time, that time that had been predestined by God. And yet on this night, he was going to go into the city. So they asked, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? 
I have read this text a hundred times, more than a hundred times probably. I, I, don't, I don't know, but I've read this text. I know this story. I, I know these words, but something truly peculiar struck me this week as I read them, and I know why. Sometimes you have thoughts or you have, you have threads that come in your study and you go, well, I don't really know where that came from, but I'll take it and I'll run with it, right? Or sometimes you'll have dreams at night and you're like, where in the world did that come from? But there are those times that you'll wake up, you'll have a dream and you'll go, I know exactly what drove that. Sometimes there's times that you'll be in your prayer closet, there's times you're wrestling with the word and you go, I know exactly what drove me there. This is one of those kind of times. Because we spent so much time last week reveling in the reality of God's absolute sovereignty in all things. We spent so much time studying just the degree to which God is in absolute sovereign control over all of creation and how nothing happens outside of his hand and his plan. How his hand is the one that is orchestrating this entire drama and all of history. But, but it struck me this week in that context, and I'm sure that many of you have felt the same, that when I really sit down and think about the sovereignty of God, when I think about the reality that nothing happens outside of his ordained will, I can oftentimes fall in the trap of wondering, then why in the world do I pray? If God is really in control, if God has really already predestined and determined literally everything that's going to come to pass, why in the world, what is the purpose for me going to him in prayer? I see based on a look on some of your faces and based on some of the questions I got this week that you've thought the same thing. That you've had the same question. And that's why I believe God would have me go there this morning. This is far from the main point of this text. I don't know if this is any point in this text, but I believe that God will be glorified and you'll be blessed if we ask this question right here. Why pray if God is sovereign? Why go to God and prayer if he's already determined everything that's going to happen. Now I'll say what I'm about to say to you with absolute love and humility and tenderness. Because again, I just confess that I have these very same questions pop in my head from time to time. But I need you to know that the very basis for that question shows a fundamental misunderstanding of prayer. What it reveals is that we have somewhere along the way allowed ourselves to be convinced that the purpose of prayer is to get God to do stuff. Specifically, to get him to do the stuff that we think is best. Now listen, these dudes knew that Jesus was in control. He made that clear, abundantly clear. He calmed the storms. He commanded demons. He raised dead people to life. He predicted things that were yet to come. These guys knew that Jesus knew all, that he was in control, and it drove them to come to him. They came to him, in short, to say, Jesus, we know you're in control. You're the one driving this bus, so what would you have us do and where would you have us go? What comes next? You just tell us so we can align our life and our purposes and our efforts with what you're doing here. Dear friends, you must hear me. And I don't say this to sound cute. The reality that God is absolutely and supremely and decisively sovereign should not hinder your prayers. It should drive it. But that just becomes a preacher's platitude if you don't understand the purpose of prayer. If you misunderstand the purpose of prayer, if you 
believe that the purpose in prayer is to get God to do the things that you want him to do, even if those things are sincere, even if those things are selfless, if you believe that your purpose in prayer is to get stuff from God or to get God to do things, this will never make sense. His sovereignty will, in fact, be a hindrance to your prayers. And so, as I was wrestling with this, this week, God brought me, I'm not a man of analogies. Have you learned that yet? I'm just kind of a dude that sticks to this. I'm not a guy that tries to tell stories. I'm not a guy that tries to tell jokes. I'm not a guy with analogies. This was an analogy that God gave me that helped me. If it doesn't help you, it only costs you two minutes. I'll give you your money back on those two minutes, okay? But, but it occurred to me that this is a bit like me looking to one of my daughters and saying, Annie, I love you more than you could possibly know, and I just want you to come to me. I just want you to come to me and spend time with me. I want you to tell me what you're afraid of. I want you to tell me what you're anxious about. I want you to tell me the things that you think you need. I want you to just come and be with me. To which she replies, why? You're the boss. And you've already determined what you're going to do. To which I might reply, well, yes, is that the only reason you come to me? You come to me so that you can dictate what comes next? You come to me to advise me on what needs to happen next? You come to me just to get me to do things? I want you to come and be with me. You'll be blessed just by being with me. You're going to see the way that I do things, and you're going to be changed by being with me. I want to include you in the kind of things that I'm doing. But you believe that coming to me, the only purpose to come to me is to, is to get me to do things. And, and again, I tell you, I recognize how far short this analogy falls because I'm not the infallible God of the universe. I'm sovereign over nothing. I have trouble controlling even my own tongue. But I believe this reveals the heart that I have in prayer. That much, much of my life this is the reason why so many of us, we fail at this. And it's not just because we don't believe in the sovereignty of God. And it's not because we don't believe in the importance of prayer. It's because no one has ever taken the time to help us have a proper theology of prayer. Understand, what's the purpose in prayer? And so what do we do? We come to this and we say, okay, God commands that we pray and so we'll do it. Dear friends, you will never have a fruitful prayer life if the only reason you do it is because God said it. Now he said it and you should do it. There's blessing in doing the things that he says. But if you never understand why you're there, you never understand the purpose, you'll never be blessed in this. You're always going to find it fruitless. You're always going to find it frustrating. You're always going to find it dry. It's never going to make sense in your mind. If you don't stop to ask, what's my point here? And so where else would we go other than him? Jesus knows about the sovereignty of God, I'm pretty sure. And yet we see him giving us a picture. This is the way you're supposed to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed, holy, sanctified, glorified. That's it, dear friends. There's more to the prayer, but that's it. Just like everything else that exists, just like everything else that he has given us, it all exists for the sake of his glory. That must be our goal. That must be our purpose in all of this. God, I want you to be glorified. My goal in coming to you, even right now in prayer, when nobody else can see, my goal is that you would be glorified beginning in my life. More than food, more than healing, 
more than whatever else I think that I need, I long for your glory. Remembering now, God's glory and your joy are perfectly married together. For those that are truly his, his glory is your ultimate good. His glory is your ultimate goal. So to come to him and get focused on the things is always to trade down. Now the things might be part of what he's using for his glory. The things might be things that he desires to give you that he might be most glorified. But as soon as you focus on the things, you've just traded down. You've just assaulted his glory and you've robbed yourself of of true joy. So it's always got to begin here. God, your glory, hallowed be thy name. Because that's what God's doing in prayer. He's inviting you to come to himself. He's saying, come and taste and see that which is best. Come and sit at my feet and be satisfied. Come and sit at my feet and find true and lasting pleasure. Make this your joy. Dear friends, would you do this this week? Make this your goal in prayer, to glorify God to your ultimate good. Say, God, I sit at your feet and I trust that the more glorious, the more radiant, the more brilliant I see you, the greater my joy, the more full my satisfaction, the more real the good that you're doing in my life. And dear friends, you've got to see then how God's sovereignty doesn't hamper this. It guarantees it. Because God says, I will be glorified. My glory I will not share with another. So you come before him and you say, God, my ultimate desire is your will. I mean, it's your glory. And he says, done. Say, God, please use me and show me and change me. That's literally been my prayer for the last six months. God, give me joy in your glory. Because I'm so selfish and I'm so narrow-minded and I'm so short-sighted that I don't always get there. I'm struggling to experience this. I know it because your word says it. I know it because I've seen it in the life of other people. So that's my prayer. God, I want you to be glorified in my life, that I know that the victory is won. I know that Jesus Christ did the thing that needed to be done, everything that would have separated me from you. My guilt and your wrath is done so that you welcome me into your presence, knowing that you're going to work these things for my good, so that you would be glorified even now even in this moment, even in this time. Hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, I long for your kingdom. I long for your rule and your reign that you might be glorified. And I long for your will to get there because my will is busted. My will is informed by limited knowledge and fallible wisdom. So even when I have the most sincere desire for your glory, I got no path to get there. So I trust in your will. Because only your will will lead to your ultimate glory and my ultimate good. You see the way your your prayers change? Because what happens is we go and we say, God, not my will, but your will be done as long as your will ends in a new truck. Not my will, but your will be done as long as your will leads to an end of earthly suffering. It's like we give God a choose-your-own-adventure book, and he's got two options. Instead, we fall down before him and we say, God, you're the glorious God of the universe. I want your glory more than anything else. So I want you to rule and to reign into my heart today. And part of that rule and part of that reign means that I submit my will to your will because I trust that your will is greatest, that your will is the best. So I long for you because you control all things. I long for you to take control, to do the things that you're going to do for my ultimate good. I want to be joined to you in this. My friends, when's the last time you prayed like this? The top three agenda items on your prayer time with God is your glory your kingdom your will that's why we're here God and I know it's all to my good and I know this is why you've invited me here and then we get to the stuff he really did say you have not because you ask not there's literally things you won't have if you don't pray for he says it 
But you've got to see how even in this, even in the asking for the stuff, he's glorified and he's doing your good. He says, look, I could give you the stuff without coming to me, but then you wouldn't be with me. And what you need more than the stuff is to come and be with me. And I'm glorified as you declare to the world, everything good comes from my Father. Oh, you need my help with something? Let me go ask the one who has endless provision. Let me go ask the one that always works for my good. Let me go ask the one that's in control of all the universe. Let me go ask the one whose will is best. Let me go ask the one who has a kingdom that will never end. Oh, you want something? I know who to go to. He is glorified in this. And then as you sit at his feet, it's for your good. You'll find what true pleasure is. Do you wonder why he allows you to pray for things for years on end? He says, I'm not done giving you this goodness of me yet. You're going to sit here, and you're going to pray, and you're going to pray, and you're going to pray, and you're going to pray. You're going to find your will changed. You're going to find my rule and my reign coming into your life. You're going to see me as truly glorious, and you're going to keep coming back. Sometimes I'm going to do that through giving you the things. He says here, give us this day our daily bread. I don't want bread if I can't eat it to your glory. But God, would you give me bread so that I can live? Because if I live, I'm going to glorify you. Oh, but if you don't want me to live, if it's to your glory that I die, that I show to the world that dying is gaining, that dying and coming into your presence is better than anything this world has to offer, then glorify yourself by that. But if I can't eat this bread without it being to your glory, or if I can't go without the bread without it being to your glory, then I don't even know what I'm coming to you for. Because your glory is still the goal. Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven those that de- uh, forgiven our debtors. God, I need your forgiveness. I want your forgiveness. That's the thing that can separate us. Jesus Christ has already purchased it. And now from this place, let me forgive others. That I'll be a forgiven sinner forgiving a bunch of sinners. They may see the glorious grace of you in my life. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God, this evil, this sin, these things that seek to rob you of your glory, I hate them because they rob me of my good. They rob you of your glory. They rob me of my joy. So God, I want to be holy for your sake. I want to be holy for your name. I want the world to look at me and see my good works, see a changed life to your glory. Not for my pats on the back. Not because I want to avoid punishment. There's no punishment left. The punishment is gone. The wrath has been satisfied. I want to be holy because I want to look like your son. Because I want to please you. Because I want to glorify you. Because I hate the things that impugn your name. This is the theology of prayer. This is the picture of what he's calling us to. And don't you see this? These dudes didn't get it perfectly. Long way from it. Before the night was over, they're going to be arguing about which one of them is greatest. Again. Their theology wasn't all buttoned up. They were an absolute mess at points, but they got this. They understood that this was all about Jesus. They knew that they weren't in charge. They knew they weren't in control. And so they went to him. They said, Jesus, where do you want us to go and what do you want us to do next? We don't know what tonight holds. See, we believe that we have some understanding. We know there's a feast. There'll probably be a lamb there. There's gonna be some bread there. We know some general understanding maybe of what you're doing, but they didn't know the half of it. They didn't know the infinite glories of what he was fixing to reveal on that night and in the day to come. They had no idea what they were setting themselves up for. They may have been really excited. It's like Thanksgiving and 4th of July all wrapped into one. This is a big deal. They were really excited for what they thought was going to be a really special feast. They didn't have a clue. But he did. So they said, you tell us. You know what tomorrow looks like. So why would we go to anybody else? You tell us what to do. You tell us where to go. You tell us what to want. You tell us what to look for. We just want our lives to be joined with your purposes. We want to quit working counter-purpose to you. We want to quit pulling against you like a stupid donkey. For once in our life, we want to joyfully go along with what you're doing. 
And so we submit to you now, tell us where to go, and there we will go. And they sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? These are very specific instructions. It reminds us of the triumphal entry, doesn't it? Sending ahead of the disciples to get the donkey. He sends two here. It's Peter and John. He tells them to go into the city. The Passover can't be eaten outside of the city. Otherwise, they would have just possibly had it in Bethany at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It had to be eaten inside the city. And so, you notice he doesn't give them a specific address. He doesn't even give them directions to where to go. He gives them some pretty cryptic instructions on how to go. And there's been some speculation from commentators about why this is. And one that I'm quite fond of. I don't know that this is it, but I think it makes sense that perhaps it's because Judas was listening. Judas was there in the group, and Jesus knew what Judas was all about. And if Judas knew the house that they were going to, it would have been nothing then for him to alert the officials, this is where you're going to come and arrest Jesus on this night. Remember, he was already looking for an opportunity to betray him. So that perhaps what happened was Jesus gave these cryptic instructions to his trusted apostles so that Judas wouldn't know where to send the people until it was too late. Again, I don't know, just an interesting thought. But Peter and, and John, they go, and they're going to go in the city, and they're going to find a man carrying a jar of water. But again, how? If Josephus is right, and there were 250,000 lamb killed on that Passover, Scripture tells us that you need 10 men, 10 people, to eat the lamb because it's all got to be consumed before the sun comes up. That would tell us something like 2.5 million people. How are you going to find one dude carrying some water? Now, it was a little bit strange for a man to be carrying water back then. It would... That's women's work. Women normally went and got the water and then carried the water in for the preparation. And so it would have been a little bit strange, but this would not have been the only man carrying water in all of Jerusalem. And even if he was, how are you going to spot him? And yet Jesus says you're going to go into the city and you're going to find this man. And perhaps it seems to me that Jesus has made some arrangement with this man and with his master beforehand. That doesn't have to be the case. Jesus could have used some supernatural working to do exactly this, to orchestrate this just knowing some kind of foreknowledge exactly this that was going to come to pass. But that's not necessary. Clearly, he had made some arrangement, I think, that this man was going to be walking through town carrying the water. And this is almost like, you think about a man on a blind date, and he tells the woman, hey, I'm going to be the dude with a, a red rose or whatever. Like, that's how you'll know this is who I am. You're going to see the guy carrying the water. So Peter and John, they're going to go in the city. They're going to look for the man carrying the water. And he says, when you see him, when you find him, follow him. For wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. Christian, you must know that if you're going to follow Jesus Christ, if you're going to simply say in your heart, Jesus is Lord, and whatever he tells me to do, that I will do, it's going to lead you into some very uncomfortable situations, some very uncomfortable conversations. His ways are not our ways. If you follow him long enough, he is going to lead you in some places where there is a very distinct fork in the road, where you've got some very real decisions to make. Am I going to honor and obey Jesus Christ and completely look like a fool to the rest of the world? Or am I going to hold on to my dignity and disobey him? He had told these men that they were going to go and find this guy. That we're not told that he knew them. I mean, maybe they did. Again, maybe if my idea about Judas was wrong, they could have just looked at him and said, hey, we're going to John Mark's house. Let's meet there. 
But he does, and he tells them this, that they're going to go and find the man and then follow the man into the house and then say to the master, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat Passover with my disciples? That could get real awkward real quick, but clearly this man was a follower of Jesus Christ. That's why he says the teacher. You notice he doesn't say a teacher, and you notice he doesn't have to qualify who the teacher is. He doesn't have to say, this is the teacher. You know that guy that's been down there fighting with the Sanhedrin all this week. He simply says the teacher. So Apparently the owner of this house knew Jesus. Clearly he was a follower of Jesus because take note of the way that Jesus says what comes next. Where is my guest room where I may eat with my, the Passover with my disciples? My guest room. Now Jesus said elsewhere that foxes have holes and birds of the air have, air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to even lay down his head. Jesus didn't own a house. Jesus didn't own a guest room. So you must see why he tells us this. This man, this follower of Jesus Christ, he had actually done what Jesus said. Imagine that. You remember when we talked about the cost of discipleship, we said that Jesus said anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And I told you that that word for renounce, it can also be translated to say farewell. If you would be a disciple, if you would be a follower of Jesus Christ, you must say farewell. You must say goodbye to literally everything that you have. And again, discipleship, it is not some super Christian level. It is not some official office within a church. Discipleship is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. To be Christian is to be a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple of Jesus Christ. There is no path to forgiveness. There is no path to eternal life. There is no path to the kingdom of God that does not include being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, in order to be a disciple, you must renounce all that you have. And church, I know that you're tired of hearing me say this. I know it feels like every second or third week that I'm talking about this. But you've got to know it's because we've been lied to for way too long. We've been told for way too long that following after Jesus Christ will cost us nothing. And so you've got to know, I put all my cards on the table. I'm indoctrinating you. Through a steady drumbeat of the word of God, I'm seeking to reform your mind to the truth of the gospel, to the truth of what it will really cost. Because for 20 or 30 or 40 or 80 years of your life, you've been sold a lie. So who am I to think that one time, now by the power of the working of the Holy Spirit, it can take one time. But I'm not going to stand before God someday and say, well, I threw him the truth one time. What else do you want? And so I had a conversation with Amanda this week about how heavy things can feel sometimes. She's like, dude, it just feels like everything. My wife does call me dude. Um, dude, it feels like things are just always heavy with you, man. And I said, yeah. You see, as long as you keep pushing, things are going to be heavy. As long as you keep wading out into deeper waters, things are going to get heavy. See, we could quit charging ahead. We could quit pushing on. We could take our foot off the brake and just cruise for a little bit. That's what so many others do, isn't it? Times get tough, and so they back off. The weight of this thing is too much. I don't like bearing up under the weight because it drives me to my knees, and it makes me feel weak, and it makes me feel helpless. And so I'm going to go find somebody else that's going to allow me to do things in my own power. I'm going to go find another path that makes me feel strong, that doesn't constantly demand that I fall down on my face before God. But dear friends, that's exactly why we won't. Because we've tasted and we've seen. We know that it's only here that God is doing what he desires to do in our life. When it's only here that we're going to be molded in the image of his son. That he wants us to feel weak. He wants us to be driven to our knees. He wants us to feel like helpless children with our hands up towards him saying, if you don't give me something today, I ain't going to make it. And so no, we're not going to back down. We're not going to take our foot off the gas. We're not going to quit pressing forward. And dear friends, that's why you're here. I know why you're still here. 
Look around you, church. I'm not booing anybody. I'm not mocking anybody. But look around you. These are the people that sit under the weight of God's word. They sit under the truth of God's word. That means I'm going to tell you hard things like this. I'm going to plead with God to help us to see, to help us to believe. So Jesus comes to this man and he says, where is my room? Because Jesus knew that this man had renounced it all. The home, the room, the furnishings, all of it. Now the man got to keep living there. You see, his other disciples, he told them to leave their homes, to leave their families, to come and walk with him, not knowing where they're going to lay down the next day, only living out of the purse that, by the way, Judas was stealing from, that he had called these men to something different. But this man got to stay in Jerusalem. And then when the time came and Jesus told the man, I need that, he gave it without asking because he had held it with open hands all along. I think we, get to the, we need to get to the point where as Christian people, we feel like we're constantly living with mittens or oven mitts on our hands. We can't grab anything because it's all his. He might allow us to hold it for a little bit, to use it for a little bit, but it's his. When he comes calling, it's his. I've already written it off, knowing that everything that we have and everything that we are, it exists for the sake of his glory, so we gladly give it away. Christian, are you there? Are you in that place? Do you look around you and say, this is Jesus' house. This is Jesus' car. This is Jesus' bank account. This is Jesus' marriage. These are Jesus' children. These are Jesus' skills. These are Jesus' hours in my day. This is Jesus' church. This is Jesus' ministry. This is Jesus' life. Everything that I have, it belongs to him. I've already written it off. What do you want from it? Do I hold on to some of it now or do I let it all go? You are calling the shots. What comes next? And would you give it all up without question? And here's the tricky thing. Because the good gifts that God has given us, because they are so good, because our flesh is so weak, we can so oftentimes have trouble hearing his voice. You see, oftentimes what we do is we say, God, all you got to do, everything is yours. All you got to do is call me for it. And then we just, we're just going to make sure we can't hear him. That's why he sends Peter and John. He sends two other disciples to the man and says, the master has use of it now. I'm not telling you that the man was avoiding Jesus. I'm just telling you I do. And sometimes it takes other believers that God's got to send into my path to look me in the eye and say, he wants that now. You wrote it all off, didn't you? He wants it now. That takes fellow believers around us to remind us of the things that we've committed to do, to spur us on to these good works. That's what's so beautiful about the gathering of the body. We're built up in this way. So they come to the man and they say, the time has come. For the glory of God, for the kingdom of God, according to the will of God, he wants that. Please tell me how you see all this coming together. Now God has created literally everything that, ha- everything that is and everything that exists for the sake of his glory. How he'd been moving all of creation towards this point, that he would be glorified in his son, Jesus Christ, in the person and in the works of his son, Jesus Christ, to set us free, to pay the price the cost of our sin, to wash us clean from the stain of our guilt, to drink down the cup of his father's wrath. He had been moving all things to this point, and he had touched the eyes of these men that they could see. They didn't see perfectly, a long way from it, but they saw enough that they knew that this was the Christ, that this was the son of the most high God. And so they trusted him. When he told them to go, they went. 
He told them to go and ask this hard thing and to have this uncomfortable conversation, and they went without question. And then on the other end of this conversation, we see this guy. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. God had gone before them in all this. You see, while God was preparing the heart of James and Peter and John in this moment to go do this thing, he was preparing the heart of the owner of this house. He was bringing both sides of the transaction together, all by the sovereign hand of God, all by the grace of God, all to the glory of God. Dear friends, I pray that you see this as we go through the rest of Passion Week. I pray that you see this as we get ready to study the Passover, and I pray that you see this as we prepare to come to the table in weeks to come. You see it through this lens, I promise you that you will be blessed. You don't see it through this lens. You constantly try to find yourself in this story. You constantly try to make yourself into the hero of this story. Dear friends, you will always miss it. You will always miss it. But if you would view this through the lens of the gospel, rather that it is the God of the universe who is working all of these things for our good and for his glory, I promise you'll be blown away. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, that you have chosen according to your sovereign plan. No one forced you, no one twisted your arm, but according to your goodness and your grace and your mercy and your love, you determined to save rebels like us. We thank you, Father, that we stand here today as a testimony to that goodness and that grace. We gather today seeking to give expression to that, to put your glory on display before our own hearts and that of the world. So, Father, we pray that as we leave this place, we would carry that light with us, that we would live our lives as people just consumed with your glory, that the people around us would see that light and they would wonder what on earth is up with these people. You would give us opportunity to express to them the glory of God of the universe in his son, Jesus Christ. As we sing these songs now, Father, we pray that you would be glorified, not just in the words that we sing, but in the meditations of our heart, the direction of our lives. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.